Arpa acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, borders and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. We're all negotiating our lives amidst a pandemic and each of us has a unique story of ups, downs and the in-betweens. In this episode, we're hearing stories from some health practitioners who share snippets of their experiences over the past 18 months, what they've learned, what they've cherished and the strange turns their lives are taking. Let's first meet Dr. Charles Jenkinson, cardiothoracic surgeon, final year trainee, and chair of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons Trainees Association. Hi, Tash. Thanks so much for having me along. Could you introduce yourself and give us a bit about your background where you're currently working? I'm originally from uh, Mandra in Western Australia, a uh, city about an hour south of Perth. And since 2011, I've been working as a cardiothoracic surgery registrar and I became a trainee in 2016. I usually live in Perth with my wife, Claire, and my two daughters, Cora and Georgia. Cora's seven, Georgia's three, and our cat and dog, Geordie and Cat. That's an imaginative, imaginative name I know. In the last two years, I've been living and working in Sydney I work at St. Vincent's Hospital where I'm undertaking my final parts of cardiothoracic surgery training, mainly involved in heart and lung transplantation at St. Vincent's. It's been a bit of a roller coaster the last 18 months with the pandemic and how that's affected us. Claire and the girls are still back in Perth, where Claire works for a large company in Perth City, and Cora's at school. Georgia's at a daycare where she loves to go and meet her friends and play with them every day. And so some time ago, we made the decision to be the fly in fly out family, I guess the Western Australian dream, I would move to Sydney and return frequently, where we'd still be able to have a somewhat normal semblance of family life. Of course, COVID-19 got in the way of that. And we have gone many stretches of, of many, many months where because of border closures and restrictions, we've not really been able to spend much time as a family. So although I've come along to a wonderful job with a wonderful team of people and learnt so many new skills that I hope to one day take back to Western Australia, the pandemic for my family has been very challenging. Thank you for sharing that, Charles. When we're talking about COVID-19 and its effect on health practitioners, one of the first things that comes to mind is uh, telehealth and delivery of, of healthcare um, online and over the phone, but it sounds like you're being a telehusband and telefather. What has that been like? Yes, that's it's almost a, a total flip on what we normally do with our clinical practice. And we've certainly depended on FaceTime a lot. There's been a lot of FaceTime bedtimes. We've also used a lot of Zoom. So during the first lockdown, uh, when I was spending a little bit of time away from work because our clinical practice more or less uh, dried up. I was doing quite a bit of homeschooling with Cora over Zoom. Moving on, we've kept up with using Zoom for various things. So I play quite a few computer games with Cora. It's the one way that I can, I guess, stay involved and interact with her in a way that's, that emphasizes leisure and things that she likes to enjoy. And 
I'd also admit to a an audience outside of Cora that I quite enjoyed as well. So we play a fair bit of Minecraft. Cora loves making Minecraft videos, and we can do that on Zoom in kind of the same way that you can do a, a, a podcast on Zoom. So we, we've tried to embrace technology as much as we can. We've tried to keep a sense of normalcy as much as we can. So we are pretty fastidious about making sure that we talk to each other every day and we, we do actually spend some time as a family, even, even if it's on the other side of a computer screen. I wonder if you could kind of give us an overview of how your work, working life has changed and your traineeship has changed over the past 18 months. It certainly had a big impact on our clinical practice. So from the point of view of our team dynamic at work, it's mean it has meant that we've been a little bit more segregated. So we've tried to avoid lingering in offices, in tea rooms. So we've had to split up ward rounds rather than doing larger rounds together where there's more opportunity for teaching and training. It's certainly impacted on our transplant programs. In saying that, St Vincent's last year did more heart and lung transplants than they've ever done before. It's also fostered some relationships between other transplant centres in Australia and also Aotearoa and New Zealand. We've many times sent uh, donated organs across to other states when we've been when certain teams have been unable to travel. When I first came to Sydney, we were frequently travelling interstate um, to to retrieve organs from from organ donors uh, in in their hospitals and then bring them back, uh, bring them back to Sydney. However, that certainly changed. Not being able to travel interstate as frequently has had an impact, although we've worked with colleagues to try and get around that. In working with other health practitioners, other doctors, nurses, hospital staff, how has the um, morale and dynamic changed there? It's certainly isolated a lot more people. And working with so many essential workers, that's really shown. I've worked with a couple of our junior staff members, so interns and residents. So the junior doctors who are hitting the wards for the first couple of years of their career, trying to learn as much as they can. We've had people who have been traveling from areas of concern, who some of whom have even had to stay in hotels, um, I, I guess to reduce the risk of, of either getting COVID in the community or also in a healthcare setting, you know, taking COVID out and potentially making their loved ones and their families unwell. But that also comes with a sense of isolation. It means that they're not able to be around in person with their support networks. We've certainly seen that in this current lockdown, people who haven't been able to see their family and friends, even though they might only live just across the Harbour Bridge from someone else. And that does certainly have an impact on our morale. We have to look out for each other and certainly in the workplace in a way that's safe and is responsible. We have to, you know, when possible, make sure that we get each other cups of coffee, that we check on each other, even if it's by a telephone call. Do you have any examples um, or stories that spring to mind about a time when uh, a colleague has supported you or helped you combat this sense of isolation or that you've done for for a colleague? I guess I'll start with a personal story. And in August last year, when there was essentially no interstate movement possible, I had our head of department, Dr. Paul Jantz, 
come up to me, tap me on the shoulder from 1.5 metres away, I should say, and just tell me, you've got to get home, get back to Western Australia, doesn't matter what it takes, we'll write letters, we'll talk to the government, you need to apply, you need to get on a plane and get home. And he told me, take a month, take two months, take three months, as long as you want, just get over there. And that's really hard for a healthcare practitioner because not only do we not really have a culture of taking leave, and especially when you're a specialist trainee, you also realise that in your absence, other people are going to be doing extra work to cover the input that you have on a day-to-day -day basis. But all of my team were incredibly supportive and said, no, nope, you just got to do it. Get on the plane. And so I was able to get an exemption to travel back home. It was two weeks of home isolation with my whole family. So everyone stayed home. We lined it up with the school holidays and we ended up being able to spend a good few weeks together as a family, first of all in isolation. And then when isolation broke, the very first thing I did was went out to dinner with some family and friends. And I'd like to say that I'd been able to help other colleagues do the same thing. I've certainly covered one of our other trainees at St. Vincent's. He's been able to spend some time with his family and during brief windows of opportunity has been able to take some holidays and travel. I might ask about um, in your work as a in cardiothoracic, whether you've seen any impacts like of patients with COVID. Our exposure to COVID in the cardiothoracic world has been somewhat limited. We have operated on a number of patients who have had suspected COVID, which means being in an operating theatre in full PPE. Um, so wearing respirator or N95s, uh, N95 masks, which wearing them in a long cardiac case can be very challenging when you're not able to, you know, quickly reposition it or quickly scratch the top of your nose. It also means wearing more eye protection than we would normally work in an operating theatre where we're constantly protecting ourselves against splashes and, and other exposures. We have been involved with advanced life support in patients with COVID, so using what we call ECMO. And essentially that, that's when someone's so affected by COVID that their lungs can no longer oxygenate their blood. And so we have devices that are able to do that for them while hopefully they respond to other treatments. We have been involved in that. I must say that personally, I haven't had all that much exposure. We from time to time have had to consult on patients with COVID in the intensive care unit for various other reasons, usually associated with, but not directly caused by COVID. But I think that we've been relatively sheltered from the impacts of COVID, barring the effects that it's had on our everyday practice. If you're receiving an organ from a transplant, does that person have to be tested for COVID? Like, can that, can it be transmitted through their organs? Certainly there is a potential and we, we do screen all of our donors and all of our recipients uh, in organ transplantation for COVID. And that's especially important for our recipients as well, because after they receive a transplant, you need to suppress their immune system. And that means that transplant recipients are very high risk for becoming sick from COVID. They're in a very high risk group. 
We've certainly seen that internationally in studies. And so they need to be very, very protected. We've certainly seen times when staff members have tested positive to, to COVID. And sometimes when they've been tested, it's come up that they may have potentially been infectious or that they may have had the potential to pass it on while they were at work. And that's certainly been reported on in the media and also in my own workplace as well. We did have a situation where our, our cardiac catheter lab did have to be closed for a period of time as a result of a staff member testing positive. And I was in the cath lab on that day for a very short period of time, not in the immediate area, but first thing in the morning received a telephone call saying that I needed to get myself tested. And that did cause a number of staff to have to isolate for a period of time. And it also meant that we did all have to go along and have swabs. Um, from our side of things, the impact of that was minimised. It was identified very quickly. Um, and it was just the simple process of going and being tested and then we were able to return to work more or less immediately after that. And thankfully, there, there were no other people who had COVID passed to them, certainly from our team, after that particular episode. Thanks, Charles, for, for sharing that. Is there any final words or reflections that you have on this strange period in which we find ourselves? COVID has been challenging for so many of us in very individual ways. And it's affected many of us in ways that we never could have anticipated even a short couple of years ago. I'd like to emphasise that as colleagues, we need to look out for each other. We need to be kind. We need to check on each other and we need to have each other's back. I think the most important thing is to recognise when you're not okay. And there'll be days when you're not okay. And sometimes that might stretch out to weeks or even longer. And sometimes it might even be for more than that. And it might be that your own mental health is starting to become an issue, in which case you need to actually admit it. You need to be able to seek help. And that might be through your general practitioner in the first place. And it might be through a general practitioner that you either see or that you have been seeing for a long time and you see by telehealth. I know that my general practitioner back in Western Australia is very happy to see me via telehealth. Or it might actually be going on to, to get more support, either through seeing a psychologist or a coach, um, any, any kind of professional who can actually help you get through these dark times or these, these difficult and trying times. As we go about returning to what will be our new normal with vaccination and with various plans for reopening, I think that we never need to forget the input of those who have helped carry us through the times that people have made us laugh, the people that we've shared our darker moments with. And hopefully we will carry some positives from this as well as all of the times when it's been really difficult. Thanks again, Charles, for joining us for this conversation and letting us have a glimpse into your personal life, but also sharing the realities of being a health practitioner during a pandemic. In our next conversation, we'll welcome Dr. Sophie Thorne, who's a junior doctor working in emergency department, and also my sister. Welcome, Sophie. 
Thanks, Tash. Um, as you said, I'm a junior doctor. I work in at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. I'm in my second year of work as a doctor, so I do rotations, but at the moment I'm working in the emergency department. Let's rewind the clock a little bit. What work were you doing before the pandemic started? I just started working in January of 2020, so I only got a few months of work in um, in an aged care facility. Uh, and then the pandemic struck um, when I started doing emergency medicine. And so you were there to see the emergency department like really change, like how it was set up. What did what did you see happen and what did you hear from your colleagues who had been working there for a longer time about the changes that they had seen? Um, it was quite a scary time. There was a lot of restructuring of things, the way that we uh, the, the team sort of overhauled the way that patients entered the department, the way they were treated once we were in there, the way that the doctors and nurses interacted with the patients, um, and then the way that the department itself was set up. So in terms of the which beds and rooms could be used for which patients um, and the all the PPE. The other quite noticeable thing to me, because I was only in my first year of working um, and had just finished being a student, was that one day all of the students disappeared from the hospital and didn't come back for a couple of months. So that was because of COVID, because they couldn't have extra people in the hospital? Yeah, I think it was a risk mitigation strategy, both because we wanted to reduce the number of people in the teams that were walking around the hospital, um, and reduce any risk to the students themselves. So instead of um, instead of the students following the doctors around all day, they um, went to a more virtual environment. Um, they've come back now, but only in limited capacities. So for example, they are never allowed to see people who are suspected COVID infections. As health practitioners, you understand that all of these changes are for your health, for the improved health and safety of the patients and the colleagues. But was it stressful? Was it sad? Like, if you cast your mind back, what did it feel like? Um, it was quite stressful, but it felt good to be working in a place that was proactive, that was really doing everything it could to reduce the risk to the staff, in addition to reducing the risk for the, for the patients um, and the public. Um, it was sad because we lost a few elements of patient care that, that I think nobody could really imagine losing, which was the ability to communicate with your facial expressions, um, uh, particularly when you have a language barrier or um, a patient who's hard of hearing. Uh, obviously, your facial expressions do a lot with communication. In an emergency department, were people presenting differently? Like we hear about the worried well um, coming to emergency departments and maybe during the height of a pandemic, fewer of them presented? Or did you notice fewer examples of people who had uh, got injuries at parties or things that weren't happening because we were in a lockdown? Yeah, definitely. There were some really noticeable changes. The worried well are a group of patients who um, present perhaps about smaller medical complaints than um, rather than the ones that we would expect to see in the emergency department, like heart attacks and strokes, people who present with things that are maybe a, a sign of a small problem or a chronic problem, but it causes them to present to the emergency department instead of perhaps more appropriately going to their GP. Uh, we didn't get the worried well quite as much because they were nervous about being in the hospital at all. That's actually it's something that's been quite different between last lockdown and this lockdown. In, um, 
the middle of the year last year, the emergency department was much, much quieter with many fewer presentations. Um, and certain presentations we weren't seeing, like the um, drug and alcohol related ones were a little bit down. Mental health related ones were unfortunately a bit up. Um, and interestingly, we saw lots of DIY related um, injuries, so falls from ladders and things like that um, were actually higher rates than previous years. But this year in this lockdown, um, we're busier than we, than we normally are. Um, it's more consistent throughout the day. Usually I think the emergency department is busier sort of on Friday, Saturday nights. Um, whereas at the moment we're sort of getting a consistent um, patient load throughout the day, which is actually a little unusual. How do you take care of yourself? Like what do you have in place to be able to see these horrible things happen and also need to continue to work to protect and keep people safe? I think like anyone, my job has its ups and downs. I do get to see some really, uh, I, I do get to help and see some really nice things at work, see some people get better when maybe they didn't think so, see some people finally figure out what was wrong with them um, and, and be able to help fix it, which is really nice. In terms of out of work things, I, um, I always walk home from work and that gives me a nice, like, feels like a barrier of time and space between work and home that I have 20 minutes to just reflect on my day, put it away and then get on with the rest of my life. Um, and then all the usual things like friends and family and um, exercise and reading and normal life things. <laughs> Glad to the family got a, got a shout out and obviously works both ways. How about in your personal life, if you feel comfortable sharing it, um, has there been anything strange, unusual that you can call to mind and, and share with us? Um, I live with another healthcare worker with a doctor at another hospital. And um, unfortunately, she's had a, a couple of first-hand experiences of the 14-day quarantine. Um, she had an exposure at work, which was completely not her fault and resulted in a large um, number of furloughed staff at her uh, healthcare network. And um, as a result, she was sent into 14 days of quarantine. Um, unfortunately, after returning to work, she had another exposure just a couple of days later and was sent back to the 14 days of quarantine. And um, it was a, it, it really hit home how long 14 days is when, um, when I was sort of experiencing it secondhand through her. And um, the, the, it made me a bit more scared to go to work every day, thinking that that might also happen to me. Is there a message that you'd like to give to the public, um, potential patients about the pandemic, but also about things that they might not be thinking about, but that you see in the presentations to hospital? The hospital is still a safe place to be. We see a lot of people who come in sort of in extremis and they say, oh, I didn't, I started having this symptom X, Y, Z yesterday, but I didn't want to come in but now I felt like I had to. That's a dangerous thing to be scared to come to the hospital, um, although it's understandable at the moment, but we are doing what we can to reduce the risk to everyone. The patients that we're seeing in the, in the emergency department and admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 are largely unvaccinated. And is there anything that you see, any changes that have just come into effect because of the pandemic 
that work well and that you'd like to see uh, or things that you can't wait until it goes back to normal? I think the flexibility that we have now that we never used to have is really impressive. The um, new and different ways that we have to communicate with patients when it, things become difficult. So for example, the other day I had a patient who I couldn't, um, didn't speak English uh, and I needed an interpreter, but I wasn't allowed to take a phone into a COVID positive patient's room because the phone would have to be disinfected. Um, and the way that we usually use an interpreter it, with COVID positive patients didn't have the language that I needed. Um, and so we managed to set up a telehealth through the door with um, the patient's children, uh, which is something that I, I would never have been able to set up by myself. Um, I learned a lot in that process. Um, and also just, it was so easy to communicate once we'd set it all up. Um, so I think that sort of thing, the flexibility, um, thinking like, that these things that we're dealing with today every day we can't imagine having dealt with last week last year um so it's nice to know that that we can bend and stretch to to whatever things we need and I sort of trust that our healthcare systems could handle um disasters we um just recently increased our bed capacity in the in the emergency department and um, I guess knowing that we can do that now suggests that if in the future, if we ever needed anything like that again for any other reason, that it might be really quick to set up, that it might be something that can be set up in a, in a matter of days or weeks if needed. I guess the other thing is the support that all of the healthcare workers have given to each other um, and that we've also received from like our friends and family um, who maybe don't work in the healthcare sector. It's a lot of appreciation and nice, kind words sent our way, which is nice. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and your stories and, of course, as well for the work that you do. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and listen to our ever-growing back catalogue. Uh, we'd love to also hear your thoughts. Our email address is communications at opera.gov.au. And please tune in for our next episode, another two conversations with health practitioners about what it's like to be a health practitioner during a pandemic. Thanks and take care. <laughs>